This is the Bayes Factor, a podcast about Bayesian statistics and other hot methodological issues in psychological research. In this episode, Alex and JP interview Zoltan Dinesh. They discuss Zoltan's passion for the martial arts, how Bayesian inference is more compatible with Popper's philosophy of science, and the easiest way to start using Bayesian statistics in practice. Well, thanks for joining us today, Zoltan. Um, Maybe you can start by telling us about yourself. Uh, Where are you from? Where do you come from? What's your family history? That's a slightly complex question. I was born in Australia, lived in Australia until I was 11, and then came to England. My mother's mother's English. Uh, But the name DNS or Dienisch is Hungarian. So my grandfather's Hungarian. Mm. Uh, he came to England when he was 16, uh, following his father. His father, who was Hungarian, was a, he became the head of mathematics at Birkbeck College uh, until just after World War II. Um, I see. Is that who you see when you Google your name? And it's like you see my grandfather, <laughs> yeah, Zoltan Dinas, <laughs> who was named after. Ah, we'll we'll put up some links to your real page uh, so people can find you right away. Right. Yeah, right. for anyone listening, he doesn't look like a old man with a white beard and no. No. long white hair. <laughs> <laughs> D- died a couple of years ago, age 97. Oh, Oof, wow. That's, that's not me, no. But my grandfather, when he died, he was um, he was singing with friends, happy, oh. age 97. Wow. All his wits about him. That's so amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing yeah. We heard a rumor that your name used to be Paul. Did, did you change it? <laughs> <laughs> you have your sources, don't you? Yeah. We've heard uh, Little Birds. Yes. Yeah, I was, I, was, I was born Paul, that's right, which is actually my, my grandfather's second name. He's Zoltan Paul Dinesh. Oh. Um, and I changed my name when I was seven. Oh, yeah. uh, my mother changed the name at that time. Nice. You had no say in that. <laughs> uh, my mother's name changed, no. <laughs> but, but, she, but she said to me, if you were to change your name, what would you, what would you like? I said, well, I like my grandfather Zoltan. Right. Henceforth, I wish to be called Zoltan. Okay. And that's wow. I was. That's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. 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 Wow. So, uh, and you're, so now where are your current job, university? Uh, professor, University of Sussex in Brighton, uh, by the sea. Which is where we are right where now. We are. Uh, in fact, I've been here 27 years. Wow. That's wow. half my life. I Very loyal. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah, that's right. Well, just Brighton is such a great place to be. Right. Right. Where were you before that, academically? Uh, when I came here, I'd just finished my PhD at Oxford with Donald Broadbent as my supervisor. Oh, that um, was your supervisor. Oh, interesting. And this was my first job. I think I had published, I published one paper. And Donald, in a reference, said he's a good guy. And in those days, you can get <laughs> jobs on that basis. Wow, Not different anymore. time. Yeah, that's right. That's incredible, wow. I remember uh, reading, when I was in uh, um, um, word recognition research, I read a lot of his papers, mm-hmm. Rob, and I, I really liked them. I did, didn't realize that there were um, students of his still active in, in my surroundings. That's great. Yes, yeah. yeah. No, I, I was... I felt lucky to have him as a yeah. supervisor. He, he was great. One of his last, wasn't quite his last uh, okay. supervising. Right. Yeah. Do you have any hobbies outside of academia that you want to tell us about? Oh, the main one would be martial arts. Ooh, what uh, kind? Um, well, I run a club here called the Integrated Martial Arts Club because I've done quite a few different martial arts. Which one? 
I started with um, karate. Which uh, style? Shotokan. Okay. And I think uh, you did yeah. Shotokan, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I did that for decades. I got up to second down in, mm-hmm. in Shotokan. Um, but I realized, so, yeah, um, I was doing Shotokan. I, I learned that in the seven, 1970s and 80s. Right. And in those days, you'd do one style and you sort of stick with it. Well, for a start, there wasn't that much around. Yeah, uh, true. But there was also this, this sort of culture of sticking with mm-hmm. with things. Um, but I sort of became unhappy with, uh, you do what the master says, and it's passed down uh, from master to disciple. And uh, what you have now, what you can have now, is more like science, a critical tradition, where uh-huh. the teacher shows you something and says, well, this is, what I, this is how I teach my students. This is what I do. This is a, mm-hmm. this is a solution I have to this self-defense or other problem um i'll teach you that but if you can come up come up with something better then that's great or Hmm. you know go and train with these other people and steal their ideas and uh, yeah that doesn't sound very traditional japanese to me no no my teacher would never have allowed that no no that's (laughs) right so yeah i was brought up with that traditional militaristic japanese uh, type approach which is not how i teach okay yeah how long have you been doing this I suppose I started martial arts when I was 11 and I saw a Bruce Lee movie. So this was in the 1970s. Okay. And when Bruce Lee hit the scene then, he just amazed everybody. There was no choice. We had to just do it. Yeah, that's right. Were you the same way, JP? Well, I didn't uh, start with Bruce Lee, but I remember uh, seeing the movie and having these thoughts. But there was no good martial arts... uh, uh, available. Then when a student, I met, we met a fantastic teacher, so we basically persuaded him to teach us. Wow. He was basically straight from Japan kind of guy. Mm. And very different from the then common uh, uh, Shotokan schools. Mm-hmm. Um, much more traditional, in fact, but we like that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Uh, do, you, do your PhD students or your students in general join your martial arts club? Actually, often they do. And, uh, when I get visitors over from other countries, um, I've had a fair number from China, they often come to my martial arts club as well. Yeah, that's oh, why I see. it's all part of the experience of yeah. coming to the Dina's lab at Sussex. So you have a collaboration. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. You have this collaboration ongoing with uh, researchers in China then? Yes. Yeah. Uh, How long have you been in connection with them? Well, I had a postdoc, uh, Chinese postdoc, Gao Shuji work with me um, in the 1990s and I realized a typical English person who didn't speak another language so I said uh, you know whenever I call you and say uh, let's meet in 10 minutes why don't you just teach me the Chinese phrase huh. and I'll learn Chinese so I studied Chinese uh, that way for a few years and then in 2004 the International Congress of Psychology was in Beijing so I thought mm-hmm. my chance to go to China and I looked up people there into implicit learning which is been my main research area since my PhD with Donald Broadbent and they invited me back the next year and I was invited back every year more or less ever since. So um, tell us please what was the first time if you remember that what did you heard of Bayesian statistics? First time was as a PhD student uh, in Oxford. Um, what Oxford did is they invited a statistician from London from UCL called John Keir, mm-hmm. uh, who was Dutch uh, he's famous for the John Keir trend test, um, oh. which was his. Um, he didn't publish much because he didn't mm-hmm. like publishing, but oh. he was. He helped everyone, say UCL, with their research, and he's a, he's a sort of person, sort of a, uh, <coughs> a deeply intellectual, helpful person who who um, who contributes in indefinable ways to a department, but in mm-hmm. today's ref 
uh, criteria, oh, yeah. he, no. he would not be satisfied and believe him be kicked out. No. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, he came to he came to Oxford every Wednesday and taught for three hours, uh, and uh, he was very jovial and spontaneous and happy, and just taught whatever occurred on the spur of the moment to him. Uh, and one term that was Bayes. Okay. Um, so this was the late eighties. Now and the beginning of the term we had all the psychology PhD students there and then they thought oh, this is nothing to do with my thesis and so by the end of the term it was just me and one other chap mm. uh, Miles Glenn I, I found it fascinating and the calculator that is now on the web I programmed that up at that in that time we'll put it up as a link later yeah so, okay yeah, yeah on the site right Okay, so that was then born, so or the ideas for that were born then, because web that, wasn't existing. Yeah, exactly. Right? So my first conference, or almost my first conference presentation, around about ninety or ninety-one, included uh, Bayesian analysis okay. of the data. So I, I sort of schooled in Bayes and got my ideas in Bayes um, before nineteen ninety, and that nineteen ninety was a, a turning point in Bayes. We got MCMC was developed. That's right. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so when I was taught it, that didn't exist as a. Oh. So I didn't do that at all. Wow. Which is why my calculator just it doesn't do the sampling business. It just just does this little bit of numerical integration of two, yeah. just uh, you know the, the prior and, yeah. the, uh, and the likelihood. Uh, and when I came back to Bayes <coughs> around about two thousand and four, I started thinking about it again, mainly to teach students actually. Um, the landscape had changed in many ways with MCMC, but I thought, well, a lot of things cognitive psychologists, experimental psychologists can do. I don't need this MCMC. Um, I can just do it anyway with this tiny little bit of code that I already had as a hmm. PhD student. Something like t-tests, correlations, yeah. simple All the tests. stats, ANOVA, yeah. um, regression, yeah, t-tests. So as you had much education in classical statistics, before you learned Bayesian statistics, or did Bayesian statistics really be, was that your entry point to? Um, yeah, I didn't have much formal training. I, at the end of my first degree, which was in natural sciences, I'd say I really didn't understand statistics in the slightest. At the end of the master's, I could, I did a two-year master's at Macquarie University uh, in Sydney. That was a, that was a master's in... Um, um, experimental sci psychology. I, I learned to do the right, you know. I wouldn't say press the right buttons because in those days we used a package called BDMP, mm -hmm. which was a script language. Yeah. But I just learned to do the right script without yeah, right really understanding yeah. what I was. Run through the right hoops. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, exactly. So when I started my PhD, I just decided I can't, you know, I can't not understand the stuff. So I just picked up a bunch of books and said I'm reading all of these from cover to cover until I understand what I'm doing. Yeah, I uh, see. And I had John Keir as a uh, advisor to uh, any questions that I had. Wow. So did you know that when you were learning Bayesian stuff, that before you learned Bayesian stuff, that what you had learned before was different, frequentist or I understood the difference, or? yes. Yeah. So there was already, of course, frequentist statistics going on. Yeah, we didn't use that term in those days. No. But, no. Um, that's I actually that's interesting. Yeah. Like, uh, the, only, the term only gets meaningful, gets meaning when there's a contrast with Bayesian. Yeah. So I was also taught statistics yes. and not a genre of it. Uh, so, yes. So the, the, the so the basically the when Bayesian became more popular, less unpopular, I could say, uh, the word frequentist or frequentist is is then sort of born because then you we need another term yes. exactly as well. What, yeah. What's non-Bayesian? Uh, uh, but uh, what attracted you specifically to Bayes? 
Why was it something you wanted to do and not go with the flow and do what uh, the frequentist stuff that everybody does? What was the reason that you liked bass? I think I think the reason was uh, was John Key's teaching of it, um, mm-hmm. and it tied to philosophy of science, which I'd always had an interest in. Yeah, and you, you know, wrote a book about. Yeah, um, which we want to push here. Yes, uh, and I read um, there was a very interesting discussion. I can't remember the title of it now. It was Savage and some other people at. The Savage Forum. There's a Savage Forum. It was it was at, at, at London. Britain and sort of yeah, exactly. Was very provocative and got all these statisticians in the room and they were yeah. fighting and arguing. Oh, and someone took notes yes. and they wrote up. The yes, story. exactly. Yeah. And that was a very engaging little book. It um, is. And so, I mean, it was clear that there was this uh, passionate argument with the Bayesians and the and the non right. and the non Bayesians. So I yeah. understood that. And uh, it uh, yeah, I mean, Savage had such. A good way of saying things, such an engaging way of right. putting things. Yeah, that yeah, he, they got me hooked. Yeah, I think he got a lot of people hooked. Uh, he has this famous paper with Edwards, Lindman, and Savage, yes. nineteen sixty. And I read that one as well. Yeah, it, it's just a fantastic paper, but it's extremely technical at, at times. So yes. it can be sort of scary. Yes, but all the the prose is very engaging. Exactly. And, and, yes, uh, very clear. I. Yes, that's right. Yes. Like you say, I think it's a bit too technical for m- most psychologists. Uh, yeah. that, I mean, that's been the trouble with a lot of Bayesian papers, right. how rapidly they get that's into right. mathematics. That's right, but, yeah. Uh, but if, you, if you've looked if you at the s- pros, it would be... If you just skip all, any yeah, equation right. you see, uh, you can still, I think, get quite a lot out of it. Yes. This tends no. to be the case when you're first starting is... Like yes. The problem is, I think, not only that it goes into mathematics, because there's a certain level of mathematics that most psychologists or some psychologists can still follow. There's kind of, at some point, there's a jump into the more esoteric calculus, and then many mm-hmm. people get lost. Yes. Yeah. 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 That, yes. That's unfortunate. But it shouldn't scare people away uh, from the general logic. And I actually, before we go to your book, which is something mm. we should cover, I wanted to always ask you something which I have discussions about, especially on Twitter, mm. but also in my papers. Um, there is this idea also put forth by uh, Deborah Ma- Mayo mm. that isn't that great? The the the, the frequentists, as I pronounce it, sorry, uh, statistics uh, so nicely corresponds with Popper. Mm-hmm. And I sort of always thought, is that true? Because what we mm-hmm. do as a as a classical statistician is we we basically set up the straw man H zero, yeah. and then we try to prove our point by rejecting it. Yes. Whereas in Popper, you're supposed to reject your own theory. So it sounds a little like reverse. I wanted yes, to ask you right. what you think of that. Yes, um, I think your analysis is absolutely right, and that, that's the way Paul Meal put it uh, yeah. some some decades ago that we do and Andrew Gelman I think also made this point okay okay yeah we do the reverse we we try and reject a point hypothesis (laughs) which is almost unfalsifiable um, because the only uh, you know it um, uh, but there's an argument that it's always false sorry that's right yeah Yeah. so so that it's uh, it's almost certainly false yes yeah if if you have a continuous distribution over it then yeah probability of it is zero not that Popper put it that way yeah. um, yes, but I think yeah. actually uh, Pop- Popper hated Bayes um, but he, 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 he never he never really engaged Popper with statistics no. which is sort of funny because he had this intense interest in probability right. uh, but he was really interested in quantum theory 
That's uh-huh. why he developed. And I think his theory of probability propensity theory really only makes sense in the context of okay. uh, quantum theory, in my view. But yeah, so in terms of statistics, we didn't engage with Bayes in terms of statistics mm. or uh, naming Pearson in terms, of, in terms of the statistics, really. But if you think of the Bayes factor, I think it embodies a, a lot of Popperian ideas. So I, I think of when I'm testing hypotheses with the base factor. I'm That's true. Rather Popperian. The base factor is, 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 I would say, the closest to Popperian as you can find. But, the, if you for in, but if you use posterior distributions for your inferences, it sort of gets less Poppery because you basically, as James argues, use induction as a valid way of, uh, of doing science, just like quantitatively supported induction. Whereas, of course, Popper is famous for saying that induction is not possible. Right. So right. I wondered if you had any thoughts on, on that issue. Well, could you explain maybe how the Bayes factor is Popperian? Yeah, that's a good In one what to way start. Yeah. does it fit this mold? Well, you mentioned Mayo in terms of severe tests, and that's really a notion that goes back to, to Popper. So according to Popper, what, what you, a severe test is one where the outcome is likely given the theory and unlikely given competing background knowledge. Okay. Now that's... What a base factor does, isn't it? It, it lo- looks at some data and it says, is this likely, how likely is this uh, on, on one model relative uh, to another? Uh, so that's. So this comes in through the direct comparison then of competing ideas. Yes, that's yes. right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. So, yeah, Popper isn't famous for talking about competing theories, but no, he did. That's and my some, problem. some people can even criticize him for yes. that. But his notion of test severity, uh, severity was exactly that the outcome is likely given the theory and unlikely given the rest of background knowledge, uh, uh, as he put it. I see. Perhaps this is a good time to transition to this book you've written. Yes. Uh, the title is Understanding Psychology as a Science. An Introduction to Scientific and Statistical Inference. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a very sort of philosophical book in some sense, the first early mm. couple of chapters. It's a very short book for any mm. readers looking for maybe a uh, light bedtime story. Um, no, light. <laughs> short. Short. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so how did you come to write this book and how did you decide what topics to put into it? Really what I was thinking about was what ideas had benefited me as a scientist. So, so what is it that I'd want to tell uh, a budding scientist that I think would help speed up the process by which they became a scientist? So what do they really need to understand? So I didn't want to talk about philosophy of science for the sake of talking about philosophy of science. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to say, you know, what, I, what ideas are genuinely useful in being, in being a scientist? Um, and for me, Popper is useful in just asking yourself the simple question, how would I know if I was wrong? Yeah, that's uh, the essence of it, right? It yeah, is, exactly. It is possible to be wrong. It's possible to be wrong and to be happy, in fact, to, to um, find out your ideas are wrong, to treat your ideas not as part of yourself, but as things uh, that have their own existence um, that can be uh, accepted and rejected. Mm. Um, in some ways, that relates to the, the, the modern um, say fashion with mindfulness, um, that uh, being mindful about our theories is being a bit Popperian, you know, not identifying ah, with them right. uh, and uh, not thinking because so-and-so has attacked my theory or can't replicate me, uh, therefore I'm being attacked. No, it's not 
you know, scientists, we just put the theories out there and they then have their own existence. So that's the Popperian uh, idea of, of objective knowledge. And which other philosophers do you cover in this book? There's a few of them, right? Yeah, um, Lakatos. Um, What's his deal? So his deal <laughs> is to um, say, but uh, th so this is what I got out of him was to say, um, but don't, but don't think there's some, it's some sort of crime or that it's wrong if some of your ideas aren't falsifiable. If you cling on to some of your ideas, that's not necessarily a bad thing. So for Lakatos, there was a there was a central uh, sort of core that defines a research program, which you do cling on to, but you use that to generate. An empirical statement, or, or because axioms, we all have actually, even Popper had to believe in axioms. Yes. Uh, and these are, of course, never provable or disprovable, their axioms. No. Did Lakatos mean uh, empirical? Yeah, thoughts? he meant things that might, that, um, uh, so, so for Popper, you, um, or, or Popper at least one of his moods and one of his statements is you could tell the falsifiability of a theory by the, by the simply looking at the statement and seeing if it, in principle, ruled some things out. Yeah. Uh, now, he actually meant a bit more than that by falsifiability. I mean, there was a community of people actively seeking to, to falsify it. Mm -hmm. But for, for Lakatos, the sort of the logical form of the statement wasn't what was important. So the, the core could be something that sounds extremely empirical uh, and perhaps is something that could in principle be falsified uh, if you just looked at what right. it seemed to be saying. It's just that as a matter of historical fact, people didn't give up that idea. Hmm. Right. They kept to it and it was their guiding light for generating new ideas, which they would give up on. Oh, that didn't work. We'll try out this way of instantiating that oh. notion. I mean, in, within psychology, um, examples could be cognitive dissonance theory. Sure. Uh, no one experiment would ever lead you to give up cognitive dissonance theory. The, it might lead you to give up a particular uh, instantiation of it, uh, probably a fairly specific one. Um, like um, if you give children... Uh, extrinsic rewards for playing with certain toys um, you devalue those toys so if they're left by themselves afterwards they play with them less mm. uh, so there'll be some form of that particular hypothesis that people might give up on which came from cognitive dissonance theory but they wouldn't give up on cognitive dissonance theory at mm. least not straight away mm. so the notion so Lakatos uh, had the notion that you could chip away at the core uh, in what way is that corresponding to Kuhn's paradigm well, I think um, Kuhn was an inspiration so, so to, to Lakatos. So what he was trying to do was to take what he saw as good from Kuhn and keep what was good from Popper, Popper yes. and, and put them together uh, and Gee. say there was a, a there was a rational basis to how we do science. It wasn't this sort of... From Kuhn, you often get the notion it was, it was a religious yeah. type yes. uh, Effect. Especially this, what he called Lots normal science, where yeah, you're actually exactly. supposed to uh, ignore all the things that you don't like and push yeah, exactly. the things you do. So yeah, it didn't sound normal to me. Whenever no, I no, no, <laughs> no. It, it didn't resonate with me at all. Mm -hmm. uh, Popper did resonate more, yeah. but then Lakatos's uh, refinement of it, uh, okay. uh, even better. So the book discusses Popper Kuhn and. Uh, and I got a uh, that trio. Yeah. Yes. And then you transition into more statistical topics. Right. Yes. Um, so normally those things are treated apart. Um, there's philosophy of statistics and there's philosophy of science, which you'd think would be fairly interconnected, but they define different communities of, of, of scholars. But they are, in fact, intimately connected. So if you wanted to use statistics to do science, um, it would help if you had a certain philosophy of science in the traditional sense. So 
to help guide you with your philosophy of your statistics. A bit like James, that's what James does, right? Yes. You really try to couple them deeply. Yeah, James was a big influence on me being Bayesian. I, I think particularly the conviction he had that um, if something follows from the axioms of probability, uh, are you really right. going to disagree with that? Yeah, yeah that's yeah. exactly. Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's yeah. Thing. Yeah. And anything that doesn't, yeah. you can sort of uh, ignore it or show that it's wrong, basically. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's like if it doesn't follow yeah. from these well, rules it, of probability, you get the Dutch book we don't do it. Yeah. No. Right? And yes. most sensible things that, that yeah. he could come up with would later be able to be shown with these this is, if I may bring up something in between, it's something that always fascinating, I think, in, uh, in social media discussions about, uh, for instance, uh, frequentist Bayesian, mm. uh, that, that there's, like, there's this tendency uh, in large groups of people say, well, it's just a matter of opinion. And like, I always find that a bit odd, because if, if you have a paradigm that basically follows directly from the laws of probability and a mm. paradigm that does not, it isn't only a matter of opinion. No, right? no, uh, that's right. So it's it's kind of odd to say, well, you you feel this way, I feel that way, and and it's sort of tempting to 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 say, well, but here we have a consistent system, and here we get paradoxes. So maybe the one without the paradoxes is better yes. for that reason. Yes, that's right. Apart from all the other arguments. Yes. And that's uh, yeah, that's something. The rhetorical structure of the discussion always struck me as interesting. Yes, that's right. I mean, all you really have to accept is that. Um, strengths of beliefs are normatively modeled by the axioms of probability. Right. Uh, the likelihood principle, maybe. That so follows, just have fr to that follows that from, the from the axioms yeah, of probability. Yeah, that's it. Yes. That you, as long as you accept that, yes. then right. you're taking, yeah, you get to base factors, yes. for example. Yes, or the prof theory, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, depending on what you want. Yeah. 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 So the book you review, this name of Pearson, Philosophy to Statistics, yeah. you review Fisher's Philosophy to yeah. Statistics, you have a, a bit on Bayesianism, yeah, and then also a chapter at the end on the likelihood, likelihood yes. framework, yeah. which is not as common. Yes. Uh, could you maybe give a, like an overview of where do these really fit in, right? What's the difference between, I mean, are we talking just sort of basic semantic differences between yeah. Naaman Pearson and Fisher, for example, or sort of where do we draw the lines? Well, the... The lines, well, the lines start with something that sounds semantic, namely, what is a probability? Yeah. And are you willing to assign probabilities um, to beliefs mm -hmm. or to, um, to things that don't have long-run long relative frequencies? Um, so in the early days, I guess they said, well, if we stick to probability being something objective in the world because it's a long-run relative frequency, if we could spell it out somehow, uh, then as scientists, we want to be objective, so that's the way to go. So that was the name in Pearson route um, but then you can't say what's the probability I'm wrong I'm going to make a certain decision what's the probability of this theory uh, lots of uses of the term probability you can't uh, you, you just lose meaning what's the probability yeah. the earthquake started on this continent for example yes. single events basically yes. uh, in including the probability of uh, a parameter taking different values Right. So that can't be done. Right. So as soon as you say a parameter, what's the probability of this population parameter taking different values, uh, you're being a Bayesian. And that's sort of what defines a Bayesian, is they'll put a probability distribution over parameter values. Right. And when you're doing that, you're doing Bayesian 
This is actually ties in with this this statement. I don't remember who said it that everybody secretly is a Bayesian because that's how most people actually interpret things like confident intervals. Yes, that's right. So so there's like the hidden Bayesian in everyone coming trying to come out. Yes, that's right. Um, So we yeah we all have a sense of what range of parameter values is sort of plausible on the theory. We we can have a have a have a sense of that. Um, likelihood ratio people try and stand in the middle and come up with a theory of inference in which you don't have to be committed to either of those forms of probability. But to do that you need to make sure you don't assign different parameter values of probability. So you have to have point hypotheses. You have to say, I'm going to represent my theory with, I don't know, the difference between these means is 200 milliseconds. Uh, and at first I was attracted after reading Royal's book, mm-hmm. Richard, Royal. Richard Royal. Uh, we were also, we've mentioned on the podcast, we were also influenced by Richard Royal. Yeah. It's a great book. He's, yeah. um, uh, a little technical, but pretty nice. Yeah. No, I, I was, I was it's quite... A, we, we find it paradoxical that E.J. E. Wagemakers, uh, I recommended the book to both of us mm. yeah, separately. Yeah, JP and I both got this from EJ. And uh-huh. we were both uh, surprised that it was actually uh, not a Bayesian book. No, no, that's right. It's halfway to being Bayes. Yeah. Right. Because uh, it has a measure of strength of evidence on the yeah. likelihood ratio, which yeah. is just a, a sort of a, a, a particular form of a Bayes factor. I believe EJ calls the likelihood framework a halfway house. Yeah. Because you don't want to marginalize over parameters. Yeah. Yeah. So, a, I mean, Fisher came up with it originally. Um, so you can you can use it no matter what your philosophy of probability, which was sort of one of its selling points. So first, when I wrote the book, I was quite attracted to that. So why not do that? It seems to um, um, sort of bypass or sidestep uh, a lot of the arguments. Mm. It's only when I s- wanted to really apply the, all these philosophies in detail to my own data mm-hmm. uh, that I became Bayesian. Because what you have to do with a likelihood ratio, as you said, is come up with a particular point value for your um, to represent your theory. Now, what happens as you collect more data and you, you're calculating the likelihood ratio? If the true value is halfway between the two, you get no evidence for either one. But if it's in between the null and the halfway point, you'll be accumulating evidence for the null hypothesis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that seemed a bit weird to me because the value halfway between... Um, the value I happen to choose is representative of my theory. Somewhat arbitrarily, perhaps. It's somewhat arbitrarily, and the value a quarter of that size might be perfectly good for my theory, as it were. Right. Uh, and yet, the likelihood ratio would be building up evidence for the null hypothesis. Huh. Whereas, in fact, when I thought about any theory I had, it always allows a range of effect sizes, right? Right. Um, and as long as I represent that adequately, then the Bayes factor, which takes that into account, will be... Um, giving me a, a proper assessment of the evidence of my theory relative to the null. Right. That's a good point. So the difference between the likelihood ratio and the Bayes factor is that the Bayes factor, you now put a prior distribution on your parameter of interest within yeah. that theory, right? And yeah. then you now are sort of taking a look at the average predictive performance as yeah. opposed the to... the average likelihood ratio. In fact, right. you also do that with the parameters of not interest, which make it makes makes you um, makes it able to avoid the nuisance parameter problem. Yes, that's right. That's which right. Which Roy- Roy- actually has these. a lot of tricks to say, oh, yes. yeah, he's aware that this is a bit uh, tricky. So there's all these ways right. of dealing with the nuisance parameter yes. problems. Yeah, so uh, you can average them out. Right. So, uh, yeah, that's right. Right, so uh, I've got a, a question I always like to ask people who've written a book. Yeah. Is <laughs> if you were to go back and write it again, 
or if you are planning to write a second edition, yeah. uh, what would you go back and change? Or what would you add, for example? Well, what I'd like to do now is um, write what you could call an introduction to understanding psychology as a science, an introduction to that book, as it were, ah. to hit the first years. Mm. Uh, undergraduates? And everybody, undergraduates, okay. first year undergraduates. But, but it would be suitable. Anybody else? For anybody else. I mean, what's happened since then is the credibility crisis. That's right. So the landscape has changed considerably. When I wrote, wrote that book, no one knew what a stopping rule was outside you know, the, the, the inner circle of philosophers of right. statistics. So your uh, book came out 2008. 2008. And you would have been writing it 2000 and 2007, 2006, 2007. Okay. That's right. I like the way you put that. It's the first time I heard the term uh, credibility crisis. It's, it's in my circles, it's usually called the replicability called crisis. It, yeah, yeah. Or the but crisis of confidence. The crisis of yeah, confidence, that, but that sounds EJ more frequent. Yeah, it does. Uh, and it, your yeah. credibility crisis sounds actually spot on. I think I'm going to adopt that term. Right. Right. So... Yes. Uh, what do you think is the best way to deal with this credibility crisis? Where would you target if you had a few points to hit? I think we need to target everything from the basic statistics that we do to um, um, the how labs are run uh, to the publishing process to how academia is managed. So, the, so there's a, uh, a whole raft of uh, changes that, that need to be made. Chris Chambers' new book. Oh, the really yeah, Seven Deadly Sins of every, Psychology. Yeah, yeah so that's a really good, excellent yeah. book. Yeah, short, motivating uh, book that oh, yeah. uh, that hits many of many of these uh, many of these points. Right. Um, Have you waded in with your work into the credibility crisis? Have you written papers relevant to this lately? Yeah. So where I where I mainly push is the um, of course. The Bayes, the, the statistics, and the, we need to re reform our right. statistics. A part of the credibility crisis, uh, a, a, a big part of, of course, not the only part, but a big part is, um, as scientists, we haven't had any scientist uses inferential statistics, hasn't had a rational basis uh, for, well, they haven't been using, we've had it, of course, but for, for quantifying the amount of evidence for the null hypothesis. Ah, right. You uh, can't do this with a p-value. You can't do this with a p-value, no. Mm. Um, a p-value does have some evidential worth, but it's um, uh, it doesn't distinguish not having any evidence at all uh, worth much for having actually what could be good evidence for the null hypothesis. Right. It doesn't make that distinction. Um, so that's led to... Um, but if I may yeah. interrupt here, because this is one of the things that I found most inspiring in what you wrote about statistics before I even met you, hmm. uh, which is that, uh, I, and I use this to sell, base, so maybe you want to go into that in yes. more detail, which is a p-value gives you basically two possible outcomes, namely, uh, we sort of don't know now, mm. and yeah, we rejected the null hypothesis. Yes. Whereas a base factor gives you more evidence for the null, more evidence for your alternative, or we don't really know. Yes, right. Makes uh, a three-way distinction. Yeah, and, yes. and I think this is really relevant also for the credibility crisis. Yes. Could you, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, people have sort of known all these things. They sort of knew that a non-significant result, uh, well, maybe there was no evidence for anything at all, and you should suspend judgment, as Fisher said, in one of his moods. Uh, one of his moods. That's a nice way of putting it. Well, you know, if you got a non-significant result, you did try and get it, so that would be grounds for um, um, saying nothing going on here. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, so he, he, he did say both mm. um, at 
different times and that sort of how inconvenient i know <laughs> which one did he say first oh I good question yeah, yeah uh not 100 percent sure so uh, how does how does Bayes solve this then because because uh, then we because the null hypothesis and and uh, uh some version of the alternative hypothesis are put on an equal footing it's symmetric they're just two different models mm. of the world and, and treated symmetrically so you just get an amount of evidence for one versus uh, the other right um, so but because people sort of knew the non-significance maybe did one thing maybe did the other if a key result was non-significant it was difficult to publish right probably they wouldn't even try and if they did um, the, the referees would probably say oh, non-significant right. result maybe collect some more data yeah, yeah exactly. to turn a null result into a positive positive, result. Result. positive finding right yeah yes so that leads to a biased publication record. On the other hand, if your key result is significant, so the paper can be published, then it seems people treat any non-significant result whatsoever as grounds for saying there's no effect here. Let's say you do get a main effect of some manipulation, but it, you don't get a non-significant interaction with gender. Ah, so people yeah. say, oh, but it didn't interact with gender, so we can forget about... Um, this moderator. Yeah, this moderator, yeah. exactly. I mean, it, it's almost 100% of papers you read or talks you go to. As long as something is significant there, <laughs> uh, yeah, forget the rest. Yeah, yeah, then, okay, this was non-significant, so this didn't affect. Yes. You yeah. know, uh, right. There was no effect here. People were at baseline on this and and so on. So there they're quite happy f for for no rational reason to to confidently assert the null hypothesis because of a non-significant result. So that's, uh, that's, I mean, so our theories are being guided by um, an inferential principle that's just not valid, that if something else in this experiment is significant, then this non-significant result is, right. is worth its salt. But this is coming up a lot now with the replication crisis because mm -hmm. the original study might find significance and then yeah. the replication doesn't. Yeah. So we have this similar sort of idea that, well, the first one showed, yes, the effect is there. Yeah. Now we see no significant results. So now we're saying now the effect's not there. Yes. Uh, and we're, But we're not actually doing it. And then, of course, the people who are not as happy about the... Uh, at least the statement that there is a replicability crisis will say, well, you see, they weren't just good enough. Huh? These yeah, researchers right, got right. a null effect. They, they yeah. just, they, they the just bad researchers. Bad researchers. They don't, don't even yeah. get the significant. They don't have the flare, I believe someone put The flare, it. yes. The flare, flare, yes. Yeah. 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 But I saw your, your paper came out. Um, you reanalyzed some of these uh, results from the social psychology special yes. issues where they tried to replicate, you know, a bunch of different papers, different labs came in and... Mm. They each replicated one paper, basically, or, or two papers, and then mm -hmm. they had a whole special issue full of these the replication labs, papers. Yeah. No, this is separate. This was oh. in 2014 oh. with uh, Brian Nosek and Daniel Lockins were the oh, editors of this special issue. Um, how did you reanalyze these things? Well, what I, for that particular paper, what I was interested in was um, the role of power in um, frequentist uh, conclusions. Um, so, uh, so I wanted to show that you could have a high-powered, uh, non-significant result that wasn't evidence for the null, for the null hypothesis. Uh -huh. Or you could have a low-powered, non-significant result that was evidence for the null hypothesis. I see. So that, um, because the obvious retort to the, to the point that um, um, you, you can't, say, you can't assert the null, uh, the, uh, the null hypothesis 
uh, with frequentist statistics? Well, of course you can, because that's what naming Pearson allows you to do, given your agreed levels of power beforehand. Um, well, you can assert you can assert things with certain error rates. Um, at, well, with certain error rates meaning not that there's a certain probability of making error in this particular case, but in the long run use of that rule, you'll be wrong a certain x percent of time. X, x percent of the time, right? But that doesn't say anything about the strength of evidence for this particular case, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you found cases where they claim to have high power. Well, they did have a high power. Oh, they did fact. have a high power. Yeah. So, so what I was pleased ah. about that that special issue in uh, social psychology, because it was pre-registered, you get all of the types of results you get in naturally doing research. I hadn't gone through some filter to tidy everything up and make it look perfect. This right. is how stuff actually is, and so I could find a case which was a high-powered, uh, non-significant uh, replication where the, in the replication, the sample mean was exactly halfway between the null hypothesis and the original uh, effect size. Mm. So if the, if the replication was exactly halfway, the situation is symmetric for H0 and that point H1, uh, and so it can't possibly be evidence for one rather than the other, mm. even though it's a high-powered, uh, non-significant result. So by the canons of naming Pearson, you're allowed to assert uh, nothing going on here. Yeah, sure. You're, you're allowed to assert it by naming Pearson, but that doesn't mean you've got any evidence for nothing going on here. I see. Uh, and I could show uh, that indeed there was almost there, there was no evidence one way or the other. It was just uh, no evidence, meaning a base factor near one or a base so. factor near one. Yeah. Um, but I didn't need to rely on a base factor for that because a sample mean exactly in between the, oh, right. the two models is obvious to anybody yes. uh, by the symmetry of the situation that there can't possibly be evidence for one versus the other. Mm. But that's a situation that's possible with a high-powered non-significant result. I see. So I guess we need to wrap up uh, in the next few minutes. I want to ask, f- if you were going to give advice for researchers on how to sort of enter the Bayesian paradigm mm. um, and do use it in their research, yeah. what's, a, what's an easy way to get into this? Is, uh, do you have any advice for them? Uh, well, I, th- I think maybe that's especially where I come in um, because I think I provided an easy way uh, to come in in that my Bayes factor um, program uh, can be put on, can be used with the output of almost any, well, any frequentist, whatever is the package that you use however you want to model the data, however you think is appropriate to, to model your data. It could be multi-level, it could be ANOVA, whatever it is. Mm. As long as the program gives you a parameter, a standard error, and assumes a normal approximation, which you'll know if it gives you a Z-test or a T-test, then my base factor calculator is uh, mm. something that can be applied. You just take the, the parameter value it gives you, the standard error, and you plug that into my into my base factor right. calculator. So it can be, it's an add-on to anything that m- people generally will be, uh, will be using. So they have to decide how's best to model the data mm-hmm. for their scientific area, uh, make sure you get a good model of the data, uh, and then once you've got your parameter, 
estimate out and a standard error, you can do a base. So I, I think this is a good idea in general to do for everyone. I recommend trying this. I did this once for your, your before I discovered other software as well. Uh, but it might actually be, although that's not the only way, but if you have no results and you're contemplating yes. not publishing them, maybe look at your base calculator. Yes, exactly. See if you can maybe publish them as evidence for the null. Exactly. So that, that is sort of, uh, and I wrote my 2014 paper, how to get how to use Bayes to, to get interpret non-significant results. Right, right. I sort of mean that as a halfway house because if you're doing uh, frequentist or normal, normal statistics, where you know you come into trouble, you can convince anybody they come into trouble is dealing with non-significant results. Mm. Significant results, most people are happy with, right? Uh, non-significant <laughs> results, <laughs> you, you can you know, quickly see there's a problem in terms, yes, of, yes. in terms of how you interpret them. So you apply Bayes to that. So that's how I started. But I was pleased with how rapidly... Base factors were becoming incorporated into how people were thinking that by the end of that year, I, my new policy was a B for every P. A B for every P. Yeah. So yeah. wherever I have a P value, if it's a one degree freedom effect, I'll have a base factor. Oh. Uh, in all my papers uh, from, I think, 2015 onwards. So that would be a really nice way to start to get intuition about where do the results Agree? Where do they disagree? Yes, exactly. So I, I, think I always call your principle a P for every B. I didn't realize it was the other way around. Well, yeah, because most people <laughs> were doing. Uh, I would. I actually believe it both ways round. Actually. Okay. Mm. Uh, so I wasn't uh, blasphemous there. No. Okay. See, most people start with a P. So uh, I yeah. say now do a B for every P. Right. Okay. But I would say with a person who just said Bs, uh, actually, it is quite useful to have a P for each okay. of your Bs. And the reason is that a significant uh, p-value tells you there's some way of modeling H1 for which you have good evidence relative to the null. And I think that's always mm. worth knowing. So in other words, there's a Bayesian interpretation of p-values. Can you repeat that? What is the interpretation then of the p-value? Yeah, so the, the, the base fact, what base factor you get depends on how you model uh, your alternative, your H1. And so what you, what you need to do is come up with a model that is an adequate representation of your theory. There's going to be a whole bunch of different possible theories there, and hence a whole bunch of different models. If a result is significant, then there will be some model of H1 for which you'll get good evidence mm. relative to the null. Right. Uh, and that might be worth just bearing in mind, just knowing, even if you choose to ignore that for the time being, because you really have a perfectly good model of H1 in terms of your own theory, and there wasn't evidence for that, so you know um, that's how it is in terms of your own theory. But it could be worth, I think it's it's worth knowing that that there is some model of H one for which there is evidence relative to the null. Well, on this inclusive note, thank you very much, Zoltan, thank you for joining us. This has been very fun. Yes, great. You can find this podcast and all the background information mentioned in it on the Tufts HiLab website at sites.tufts.edu slash hilab slash podcast or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the base factor. We want to thank Sol Albert and Laura de Ruiter for their technical support, Sotaro Kita from Warwick University for generously letting us use his lab for several interviews, the Cognition and Individual Differences Lab at UC Irvine for their financial support, and Theo Fosse for creating the music for this podcast. <laughs>